Lily. There are Rachel Cook's song. Lily. You're so pretty. You're the hound for me. Lily. Panda. Don't meander. Oh, yep. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast. We're your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Hello, Shannon. We finally got there. We're doing House of Leaves. Very excited. I am so excited today. And here at the Pleasure of the Text, we're all about um, that shared imagined space of readers and writers making uh, meaning together. So today we're going to be talking about House of Leaves, like you said, by Mark Danieluski. So uh, I am actually going to give a bit of a background on Mark so we're a bit more acquainted with the author before we jump into his work. And this is his debut novel. So, well, for me, what an amazing debut novel it is. So Mark Z. Danieluski was born in New York City and lives in Los Angeles. He is the author of the award-winning and best-selling novel House of Leaves, National Book Award finalist only Revolutions and the novella The Fifty Year Sword, which was performed in Halloween three years in a row at Red Cat. So his books have been translated into multiple languages and his work has been the focus of university classes and literary events. So in 2015, Daniel Lewski's Throne, a reflection of Matthew Barney's Cremaster 2, was displayed at the Guggenheim Museum during a storylines exhibition. Between 2015 and 2017, Pantheon released five volumes of The Familiar, each an 880-page installment about a 12-year-old girl who finds a kitten and sets off a chain reaction with global consequences. With the release of the series, the New York Times declared Daniel Lewski America's foremost literary magus. His latest release, is it magus? That's a good well. It's it's the same uh, basis as Mage, so I would guess it's Magus, but I could be wrong. Magus, okay. His latest release, the Little Blue Kite, is in bookstores now. So, um, for a debut novel, if this was my debut novel, I would be so ecstatic. It is an incredible piece of work. Yeah, it is. You can understand where they study at, at university. There's a lot to study. Um, it's a very mm. deep work, isn't it? very deep and i'm i'm loving how you use the word deep because really it explores depth in a lot of different ways because you know that tunnel and i'm sure we're going to talk about that tunnel in a lot more detail as we progress yeah yeah i mean a really good analogy in fact would would possibly be uh looking at a painting on a wall uh the reader is the viewer the painting is the book and then you find that all of this is filtered through another reading. So you suddenly find yourself in another room, staring into the first room and the painting on the wall. And then that's filtered through another one. So you start heading down this corridor backwards uh, and you find yourself staring down a corridor through multiple rooms at this painting, which is both um, clearer and more obscured with, with every room you pass through. I think I think that's not a bad analogy for for what it was like for me anyway to read it. Mm. I did a bit of research online about how this book was written, and apparently, House of Leaves appeared in multiple installments on the internet before it was published in print form. What do you make of that? I mean, this has already been kind of produced online and then put together into paper form. Well, of course, when he was writing it, the internet was a slightly different beast to what it is today. It was a lot more message boardy. And uh, I think, you know, there, there wasn't the social media aspect. So when he was sharing it around on the internet, it was a, um, a somewhat constrained thing. And not, not at all like sharing it around on the internet today. Certainly not a, another form of publication, if you like. But clearly there was a... a 
an aspect of presentation around the whole thing. And uh, I should note, actually, I should note two things before we forget. Spoilers. There's going to be spoilers because we're delving deep. We're diving into these rooms. And because it's a hazardous enough thing to begin with, we're not going to be worrying about spoilers because that could be fatal. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that um, Danielewski's sister is the uh, musical artist Poe who uh, released a companion album for the book, essentially. Oh, I didn't haunted. know that. Uh, and so, well, you never know what's going to come up with different different researchers, right? Mm. Um, you had all the good stuff, but I've got this one thing. Uh, and, <laughs> and, yeah, so basically you can listen to Haunted whilst you're, um, you know, reading House of Leaves. It could be a different experience. I think there's a, there's a possibility of that because the book – does lend itself to multiple incongruent readings, I think. Like, would you imagine yourself reading it again, Shannon, at some point? Yes, definitely. And um, and you've kind of stumbled on a really good question there. It's You can read this book in so many different ways. For example, because there's so many different typefaces in this book, you could read it by each character and you can easily identify them by the typeface. You could read it like I did, which was kind of, uh, would you say the more academic reading or pretending to be academic because a lot of the references are made up in this book where if a footnote number appeared I would then look at the footnote um, and then if, if the footnotes there's footnotes in footnotes within this book and sometimes the footnote number does not match to anything and I'm looking for about two minutes for this number trying to get the footnote and now that I look back on it, the footnotes are made up. So why was I so intent on finding that that reference? So that is another way that you can read it. The other way is, you know, through the whole book. And that's also going into the, because there's extra material, a lot of extra material in the back as well. And then you said that you read it in a slightly different way. Yeah, I did. Um I ambled through it. I, I'm a stroller, like in life and in reading too. Um, I stroll quickly as a reader, but I do stroll. So I find that, um, you know, when I, when I go walking uh, in either context, I'm very interested in what's around me. You know, uh, a sunbeam will confuse me and I'll go darting off chasing a butterfly. That's kind of the way I am. Um, and, and, you know, Shannon, we were walking together just the other day. We actually managed to be within the same frame for a while. And, mm -hmm. um, you walk in a very, uh, industrious way. I think like it's a very deliberate walking and no step is missed. And, uh, you know, you probably get some actual physical benefit out of walking. Whereas I make such a mess of it. It, it does me no good at all. It probably takes years off my life. So I think you read House of Leaves that way. I think you were you were industriously hitting every foot foot foothold foot uh, as you climbed your way through it. And whereas I was just sort of stumbling down this corridor and down that corridor, I think in a way, if we had analogs in the uh, story, you would be uh, you would be Will Nevidson and I would be Tom. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, so I read it like I, I would read a bit of Johnny Truant's story and I would be so held by that. I'd quickly read the the Navidson's bit uh, and then hurry back to Truant. Uh, other times I'd see Truant intrude and think, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm too into what's happening here. And I would just let his bit go by. Um, yeah. And I don't think Danielewski would have a problem with that. I think that, that the book is structured to allow you or even encourages you to do that whilst at the same time saying you might miss something and so for readers of that persuasion there's the hunt is on through all the footnotes whether they're real or imagined mm. isn't that marvelous um, it is it's a marvelous and a great book and before we delve more into the labyrinth of this book uh, did you want to read a synopsis I mean, I could try. I don't actually have one on me. No. Oh, actually, I would just read it straight from the book's cover. Oh, nice, because mine just has rave reviews. <laughs> okay, so Johnny Truant, wild and troubled, sometime employee in an L.A. tattoo parlor, finds a notebook kept by Sampano, a reclusive old man found dead in a cluttered apartment. 
Herein is the heavily annotated story of the Navidson record. Will Navidson, a photojournalist, and his family move into a new house. What happens next is recorded on videotapes and in interviews. Now the Navidsons are household names. Zapano writing on loose sheets, stained napkins, cramped notebooks has compiled what must be the definitive work on the events on Ash Tree Lane. But Johnny Truant has never heard of the Navidson record, nor has anyone else he knows. And the more he reads about Will Navidson's house, the more frightened he becomes. Paranoia besets him. The worst part is that he can't just dismiss the notebook as the ramblings of a crazy old man. He's starting to notice things changing around him. Immensely imaginative, impossible to put down, impossible to forget, House of Leaves is thrilling, terrifying, and unlike anything you have ever read before. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's not strictly true. Um, for example, the Leslie S. Klinger Sherlock Holmes uh, books, the annotated ones, or in fact, Klinger's done a whole bunch. He's done uh, Lovecraft and various others. His uh, edits of these books or annotations of them are so extensive, they outstrip the text itself. And so, at least in that regard, you do have a reading of a reading in an annotated text. So, so that's not entirely uh, new. Um, the book uses things like con concrete poetry, which which is also not entirely new, and it touches on I think conte uh, concepts of uh, hypertextuality, where you have uh, footnotes that don't go anywhere. It's like going on the internet, and you're like, "Oh, that's interesting. I'll click on that link," and it just says "page not available, 404 error." And yeah, and, and I think that hypertextuality at the time he was writing it was a big deal. People were talking about creating poet poems that existed on the internet. And as you found bits of them interesting, you could touch them and it would take you to a different version of the poem, different parts of it. And so you could build your own poem. So it was in a sense trying to recreate, you know, the, the experience of reading with interest. It sounds quite quaint now, but at the time it was like, oh my God, really? Like it'll, ch it'll morph in front of your eyes. And, and no one even had a thought of touching the screen. We were all just dealing with these clunky corded mice, mouses. Um, but yeah, so, so in, in, in its parts, it's actually not that unusual. Um, Nabokov with Pale Fire. Uh, it, you know, Pale Fire is a 999 line epic poem by a poet called, I, th oh, I want to say John Shade. Um, and the book though is all about the annotations made by a self-styled and, and rather hapless academic called Kinboat, who doesn't really describe the poem at all. He just describes his own life and his goings on. And, and so you move in and out of the two. So the, the, all of these things have been done before. Um, yeah, but, so you're kind of saying that it's got fantastic lineage here. Oh, it does. Yeah, and and mm. people say, oh, it's gimmicky, and I, I find that uh, very reductive, um, because the way he uses structure and these devices creates effects that are the things people either love or hate about it. Um, yeah. You can certainly hate it, but I think um, just fobbing it off as gimmicky is weak. It's a very weak bit of criticism. It's a common one. For, for this book um but it's so easy to dismantle it's it's barely worth mentioning so i don't know why i bothered um and, yeah yeah and i think he he's not just doing it to be uh we've used this word a lot but he's not doing it to be pretentious i mm. think he's doing it for a very specific reason and i think the reason that i got from that is because this is it's a horror it's um it's a horrible um, kind of story about what happens to this family inside this house, how all the relationships uh, dynamics change quite suddenly because of this extra variable that has entered into their lives. But it's also a love story. And that's another question that I want to get into. But it is all these things. And the way that Daniel Lusky has designed this story is that I know it's there, but I can't get immersed into it because at 
all these different stages, he's pulling me out of those feelings that I want to feel within that horror aspect, within that romantic aspect. And when he is pulling me out, he's giving me something else to think about. It's, um, would you say it's like the postmodern um, design, what he's doing here? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a postmodern design. It's a, it's a meta text. It's a text that says I'm mm. a text. The, um, yeah. the, the back of the book that you read, the synopsis, assumes that Johnny Truant is in, a, in effect our protagonist. That's the way it's presented to us. But it's not Truant's story as an alive thing. Truant's story is part of this archive. Um, we have an editor outside of that. Um, now that editor might even almost be us, I feel. I, the, the distinction of the editor is not named, not given an identity. It's a sort of an unformed uh, persona. And I feel like that's probably the reader is somewhere in the vicinity of the editor as an identity. But the love story is interesting. I, I, I don't see it as a love story. We're going to differ on that. Um, mm. But I do, I do recognize that there are actually a whole bunch of love stories in it. There's um, the love story between Will and Tom. Um, yeah. And there's the love story between Johnny Truant and his mother. That, that's very much a love story, you know. And I, I mean that in the in the in the chaste sense that one can love another person without it uh, being sexual. So there's very much a love story there. And the love story between Will Navidson and Karen is really interesting because he is able. He is equipped. He is equipped beyond the constraints of their relationship, I think, and she is not. And through the process of exploring this house, one, after, one, one does it and then the other, he becomes disabled in, in a very strict sense. He has basically, to be a photographer, he needs two working legs, two working arms, and two working eyes, essentially for the kind of photographer he is. He loses one of each, I believe, um, yeah. and, and becomes disabled um, and potentially a lot happier for it, I think. Uh, Karen is, is quite weakened um, by things that have occurred in her life. She's damaged. And through the process of investigating the house for her husband, trying to find him, she's the story's hero. And she becomes yeah. very strong. She makes films that matter. The two that are about her are kind of, in a sense, more long-lasting than the, the, than the Navidson record. It's very interesting. I think, yeah, I, I find all of that stuff incredibly profound. And you couldn't house it within a familiar genre structure. You just can't make that book, I don't think. Yeah. Karen actually became one of my favorite characters. Because yeah, um, at the start, her they describe her fear of claustrophobia, dark spaces and all this. Um, there might be um, some uh, familial rape background in her story. So she's quite a damaged character coming into this house. And towards the end of it, like you said, she is the hero. She's the strongest character out of everyone who emerges out of that space. And I just want to read a section of this book because this is where I felt that shift in the characters that I mentioned during one of our podcasts. It used to be about um, Johnny. It used to be about Will. And this is the point that it becomes about Karen. So on Ashtree Lane stands a house of darkness, cold and empty. In 16 millimeter stands a house of light, love and color. So this is after she's created a film, the two films she mentioned. By following her heart, Karen made sense of what that place was not. She also discovered what she needed more than anything else. She stopped seeing Fowler, cut off questionable liaisons with other suitors, and while her mother talked of breaking up, selling the house and settlements, Karen began to prepare herself for reconciliation. Of course, she had no idea what that would entail or how far she would have to go. And that what I was like, oh, this is this is such a great book. And then, um, so she leaves her kids. She leaves the security of being in New York with her mother. And then we go on to page five hundred and twenty-two. <laughs> this is a great way to read the book. <clears throat> okay, so she's gone to the house and she's been 
kind of living in it, looking for Navidson, who's been gone for almost three months at this stage inside, well, maybe not three months, but, you know, inside the darkness of the house. There's no way to get in. There's no way to get out. As Oh, and um, as she's filming, a hallway suddenly opens up. You know, mm. it's just, it's also a very horrific moment to read. And it's using a particular trope of the thing creeping up on someone and her reaction mm. to it is surprising and, and, and really thrilling. Yeah. As everyone knows, Karen stands there on the brink for several minutes, pointing her flashlight into the darkness and calling out for Navidson. When she finally does step inside, she takes no deep breath and makes no announcement. She just steps forward and disappears behind the black curtain. A second later, that cold hollow disappears too, replaced by the wall exactly as it was before, except for one thing. All the children's drawings are gone. So you're like, oh, you think this is it. She's also been swallowed up. Whatever ultimately allows Karen to overcome her fears, there is little doubt her love for Navison is the primary catalyst. Her desire to embrace him, as she has never done before, defeats the memories of that dark well. The molestations carried out by her stepfather or whatever shadows her childhood truly conceals. In this moment, she displays the restorative power and then we're going into, you know, more quotes and stuff. But this is the real, the real gems that I found in that book. Yeah, and it's very told, isn't it? It's it's mm. it's interesting. But you always know it's a one person's it's Zampano's interpretation of these things. It's not the book telling yeah. you, it's Zampano who was haunted by the book and didn't have mm. a happy ending. Well, neither did Johnny. Well, I don't know about Johnny. Um, Johnny is a very interesting character. Let's talk about him for a bit. Well, I love Johnny. I think I think if if not Karen, then Johnny's my favorite character. Um, I love how he invents stories for other people. He tells you he does this. He tells you he lies. Then he lies to you. And then he goes, oh, come on. How did you not see that coming? And things like that. I, th I found that delightful. Also, his... Um, uh, the representation of his mental illness uh, rang very true to me. Having worked with, in and around mental illness, bless you. Uh, it's yeah, it's it felt very real to me. I thought I thought it was very convincing, very lived experience sort of stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, what, what did you think of Truant? He was. Uh, like you said, a very interesting character. Um, in terms of the way that we read it, you mentioned that you were so involved in Johnny's character that you would sometimes skip um, the Navison's record. Yeah. Um, I actually was like, okay, Johnny, you, you're a liar. There's something else going in your head. I'm actually more interested in the Navison record, which is also false and made up entirely as well. There's a, a correlation between Johnny and his mum. So if you um, end up reading the whale's toe uh, letters that the mum sends to Johnny, there's a clear decline in her mental health and her mental capacity, which I see mirrored in Johnny's um, deterioration in his um, mental health as well. And then that raises the question, is it this um, Sopano's record of the Navison house that is creating this decline as what we assume happened to Sopano, or is it a family trait? Is it is this something that he inherited from his mother and certain events in his life kind of uh, was the catalyst for that? So Johnny's was very uh, very interesting story. And the part, the, the most enjoyable lie to me on his end was you mentioned it. He starts talking about how he's getting better because he went and saw uh, two doctor friends and they're helping him with special medications and special drugs. And I reread um, the letters from his mum and she says the exact same thing. She said, oh, the, the new director is giving me new drugs and I'm feeling a lot better. And you think she is. And then she's dead. It's kind of very similar to Johnny, even though we don't know exactly what happens to him. But there's a huge uh, similarity between those two characters. Oh yeah, there is. There is, um, and also uh, the director, the mo uh, the mother talks about the old director and the new director, and then it turns out the new director mm -hmm. was still the old director, and then there is a new director, and and so you never really have your have your feet under you in mm. that book. 
Uh, and I think this is what it boils down to. I think people will either enjoy the experience of not having their, their feet under them or, or they won't. I personally, uh, so back in the day, I, uh, wrote and produced some films, not, nothing like the Navidson record, but, uh, but I wrote and produced some films and I was working with a fellow. He was the director. I was the writer and the producer. And we went to uh, Roselle mental hospital, which is long since shut down. Um, uh, and the, you know, it was basically, we were looking, we were doing a recce for locations, um, to shoot a horror film in. And, uh, so we got there and the guide, you know, you, you'd get to us, the guide would drove us to the specific building we were interested in. And she said, well, I'll wait outside. And we were like, you're not going to tour us through. And she went, hell no, I'm not going in there. And I was like, oh, that's a bit saucy, isn't it? Like, you know, <laughs> she's built up our kind of, oh, it's all horror stories. But, and that's how I understood it anyway. So we walked to the front door, uh, myself and my friend, and he handed me the camera and said, you do the photos, I'm leaving. And I was like, you're joking. Okay, now you're really pulling my leg. He went, I can't be in here. And he just walked outside, left me with the camera. Wow. Now, I'm not that great a photographer. And it was dark and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I wandered around this darkened hospital. There were no lights. All the electricity was gone um, for about an hour, uh, taking photos of this and that, going into the bathrooms and, uh, you know, all the stalls with the doors ripped off and into the room where they would give people, I assume, baths. There was a strange tub with all kinds of tubes and such, it like an operating table that included water. I don't know if that was um, some sort of treatment, couldn't tell you. But essentially, I just kept walking through disturbing room after disturbing room, uh, you know, and it was mostly in the dark. And I'm not really, um, there's a part of your brain that allows you to see kind of flickers in the mist, if you like. Uh, and I always think, you know, that's what those footnotes that lead nowhere, they're, they're, they're falling shadows that make you go, huh? And then there's nothing there. Um, I don't have that bit of my, that bit of my brain just doesn't work. So I walked around this place, which apparently was tremendously brave, but it wasn't to me because I wasn't even remotely frightened. And I just wandered around, took the photos. They weren't that good and left. Um, and what I loved about House of Leaves was that in the descriptions of the explorations, he evoked what I assume everyone else was feeling while I was exploring the hospital. Like, and so I got to have this kind of creepy feeling, um, which I can't seem to produce in myself. And, and I loved that. And I did think about that trip around Roselle Mental Hospital and all the dark corridors that look exactly the same. Uh, and yeah, it, it, for me, it worked tremendously well as a horror story. Again, you know, dead in that part of my brain. I, and I found myself moved by the creepiness at times. So I, I think that's a high bar. So, so my hat's off on that regard, but you say it's more of a love story, Shannon. Did you find it frightening at all? Yes, I did find it frightening. And I do have another amazing quote. And this is the point that I was like, that 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 that's creepy. That's horrific. Um, so the at this stage, we're only it's a very big book and we're only here within it. So that's I don't know, one tenth, one twentieth. Yeah, that something like weird that. stuff starts happening. Um, so we're now discovering that the inside of the house is bigger than the outside of the house. Oh, and this is another thing that I think the book does really well. It Every single character deals with the trauma of what's happening in very different ways. There's no same character dealing, dealing with the same trauma in the same way. It's all different. When confronting the spatial disparity in the house, Karen set her mind on familiar things while Nabson went in search of a solution. So um, Karen builds a bookshelf with one of her best friends. And we continue on. Oddly enough, a slight draft keeps easing one of the closet doors shut. It has an eerie effect because each time the door closes, we lose sight of the children. Hey, would you mind propping that open with something? Navidson asks his brother. 
Tom turns to Karen's shelves and reaches for the largest volume he can find, a novel. Just as with Karen, its removal causes an immediate domino effect. Only this time, as the books topple each other, the last few do not stop at the wall as they had previously done, but fall instead to the floor, revealing at least a foot between the end of the shelf and the plaster. Tom thinks nothing of it. Sorry, he mumbles and leads over to pick up the scattered books, which is exactly when Karen screams. So there's quite a build up of Karen building this bookshelf and then that final part. And I'm like, oh God, I got it deep feels there. And it's, it's surprising how well, because um, Zampano's manuscript is detailing film and he's writing about a film that doesn't exist. How well the description, even though we're not seeing the film, works and translates into the text form. And he does a great job of creating that horrific effect of describing something uh, third person. And there's this creature. Did you want to talk about the dark lurking creature that never gets fully seen or described? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure the creature does exist. So I think it, it almost defies description. It should be noted that Zampano is blind. Um, oh, yes, actually. Yeah, uh, which I think is interesting because he's constantly talking about visuals and a film and many films, uh, and I think that's all just wonderful. Um, actually, yeah, how does he describe the films if he can't see them? Indeed. Uh, it's it's all just terrific, really. And yeah. I can't describe the monster, but what I can do, because I think the monster's formless, and that's a good thing, because we all know, we we discussed this in our um, would-be review of a couple of horror films recently, that once you see the the evil, it ceases to be quite so terrifying. So yeah. there was actually a film made in, um, oh, was it 2021? Well, it was recently in any case. Uh, called You Should Have Left, um, starring uh, Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. Now, Mark Danielewski sued the makers of this film because it features, among other things, a house that turns out to be larger on the inside than the out, and one that features a seemingly bottomless staircase. Um, I have I have no skin in this game. Perhaps these ideas. I mean, you know, in Doctor Who, the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than the out. So I suppose, you know, it could be anything. I I'm not to say. Um, and and uh, Daniel Lewski lost his case um, and couldn't prove that he'd been plagiarized. However, I think it is possible to compare the two. And in uh, you should have left we get to see the nature of the monster, if you like. And we also get to see these ideas framed within a conventional horror narrative. And, you know, it's not brilliant. Um, it's not brilliant at all, I'm sorry to say. And, and, but, but I really appreciated watching the film because it really showed me, when people go, oh, well, yeah, House of Leaves could have been a lot scarier. I actually don't know that it could have been um, because I think as soon as you adopt the standard tropes of horror, these ideas that feel so unfamiliar and they're so hard to get your feet under you with, you know, this film you can't see uh, explained by a blind man who was being tormented and was a shut in found by a you know a drug addict um guy with a history of mental illness who then tries to uh confirm its veracity <laughs> you know this is not the stuff of reliable narrative and you wouldn't want it to be so i think that's one of the really powerful things about it horror horror is a series of moments isn't it like you know it's ideas and yeah. moments and sometimes they can be maintained um, as an entertainment, but you find that typically with horror films, they rely on frights because it's so hard to maintain chills and true horror. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say that that would be my defense of house of leaves structure in terms of its, um, validity as a horror novel. I would say to anyone who goes, it could have been done better in a more traditional way, go see, 
uh, I've forgotten its name now. That's how great it was. You should have left, um, and yeah. uh, and then you can see how good that would have that would have been. Yeah, um, I agree with you on the horror aspect because, like you said, a lot of these um, horror movies, uh, once you show the monster, or you know, it doesn't become believable. Whereas all the horror aspects within this house, you've got claustrophobia, which is a huge um, phobia for a lot of people. You've got darkness, again, a huge um, phobia, never-ending silence. So just not being able to contact another human being, be able to hear anything. It just disappears into this never-ending nothingness. Nothingness is another one. This thing that is forever shifting and changing. Change is a huge phobia for people as well. You never feel constant or stable. It has all these elements within it. And I said, you know, uh, horror movies aren't believable. And I mean, a house that's forever changing, I suppose it's not believable, but it still incorporates those very real fears in a slightly different manner. Um, another one, uh, being cold, being attacked by the shadow that you can never see. I don't know. I mean, this is a horror of mine, you know, walking um, late at night on the street, the street lamp is flickering and you see these moving shadows. That's what I pictured when reading about this um, this creature. It, you know it's not real, but you still get that quickening of breath, the heart rate elevating. That's what I felt reading um, those passages on the characters, uh, the, the creature, not the characters. It is a, a horrific um, book in that sense. And I think they've, I agree with you, they've done a great job of bringing that horror element into it. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, so much is framing like, like right now for our, for our listeners on our, on our listening platforms, Shannon is in a different location. Let me describe this to you as Zampano Midot. Shut my eyes. Uh, no, I won't. So, so she's in a different location. It could almost be the same location in a different room. Who's to say, but so the back wall is very far behind her. It's, uh, it's brick. It has a curtain over what might be a window, but it's difficult to tell because there doesn't seem to be much light passing through it. That in itself is this moment of disconnect to her immediate left, which will be the right of the screen. If you're watching at home, uh, you have a wall that appears to have been recently put up. It doesn't appear. Oh, she's gone dark too. Oh. <laughs> um, it's, it's got paint patches on it. It doesn't appear to touch the ceiling. It appears to be some sort of wall in between. What do they call those? A partition wall. There we are. Mm. Um, and what's it hiding? I mean, I haven't seen Luke this entire podcast and you start to, and so these shapes, you know, the, the, the distance of the back wall, the side wall would not be nearly so noticeable if the back wall was closer. And I really think the architecture of House of Leaves, the way the different blocks of text are positioned is what gives it a lot of its power in, in much the same way. Um, you know, we've talked about the Ulipo school um, yeah. and someone like Georges Perec with Life a User's Manual, he tells a story caught in one moment of time that's very much, uh, I don't know what you call this, but basically it's like the facade of the house has been cut away so you can see inside every apartment at once. Uh, there's a scientific thing for that. I can't remember what you call it, but where you cut something away and you can see inside it. But dissection? Uh, uh, no, it's like a oh, geez. You know, if you're listening Maybe at home, with a P. it might you know help us out here. You know, we're not we're, we're a book podcast, but but essentially, you know, these structures and the perspectives you get and and sort of architecture as a structuring technique in. Uh, in literature actually does have a, have a bit of a, a heritage to it, which is quite interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I don't think anything that Daniel Lewski has done has been accidental. And I think when you look for alternatives in his um, work, or you're going to, you're going to slap me down, get, get in there. No, no, I wasn't. I was, um, patiently waiting for you to finish. So yeah. I can raise another question. Oh, I know. <laughs> Um, Navidson had a lot to lose in the end of this book. I mean, he's already lost his brother, but you know, he's a father to his children and he has a beautiful wife. Why do you think Navidson went back into the house? Oh, that's a good question. I suppose I, well, what I would say before I try to answer it is, do you have an answer to that question? 
Yes and no. So I think the reason why Karen is such an extraordinary character and she's able to go in and out with relative ease to compare to a lot of these other um, characters that uh, are consumed by the darkness inside is because she never had this sense of having to conquer it. She had to conquer herself first, which she does when she goes inside. Navidson, in the end, you know, he loses his ability to take photos. He loses that ability to conquer. Oh, where am I going with this? But being able to conquer what his career is, um, it's over. I don't know why he goes back inside. Well, no, I think I think you're onto something. I'm, uh, mm. Yes, you've. I think you've I am. Sparked, I just need to nut it out. You've sparked a, a neuron somewhere in my head. Um, I think. Okay, so if you think about uh, Delil, is it Delil, Delisle? I call it Delisle. Let's go with Delisle, which is kind of like denial, and I think that's purposeful as well. Uh, if I'm saying it right, let us know, Daniel Lewski. Yeah, and I suppose there's the word lie in it too. Um, mm. But that's all about perspective. That's kind of why I was riffing on the room you're in. This this book deals an enormous amount on, with perspective, and the perspective of that picture is what haunts him. His because it's his position in relation to the child and the vulture. That's what haunts him. And that's what's described in enormous detail, the use of space to the right, everything else. So his culpability, his, his, his guilt is housed in this concept of geometry and architecture. So of course, a house would be the thing that would be problematic for him, especially a house whose perspectives keep shifting. Mm. Navidson in his exploration of the house, his final exploration, has all of his concepts of perspective ruined one by one. He goes down a hill, he turns around, turns out to still be going downhill. Things get bigger, they get smaller. He gets a sense that he can grab onto something. There's some light, there's a window that doesn't mean anything. He keeps having all these things taken away from him until finally there is nothing at all. He's not falling or he might be falling, but he could be falling upwards. He could be going in any direction. He might not be moving at all. He loses all of it. And I think what the house takes from him is what he needs to lose to survive. Um, and, and really, you know, the, the, the negative effect um, the house has on some of the other characters, you could almost describe as incidental. But certainly it seems to work a little bit like a mirror. Um, but yeah. We got it, that sense as well. It takes everything away from him that was, in a sense, bothering him. Um, in, you know, pretty aggressive way, like this is an amputation. Um, and then it takes from him the things that could have allowed him to continue down that self-destructive path, takes his, takes one of his eyes, which wrecks your sense of, um, depth perception and perspectives, just a disaster. Takes one of his hands, which, you know, if you've ever tried to use a camera one-handed is actually not that easy, uh, and takes one of his legs, which makes traveling around the world. A lot more difficult uh and so you know it's 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 very poetic in that way uh, but i think it's not heavy-handed so when i first thought of when i first read it i kind of went oh bummer that's bad for him and then as as the story settles into its ending it gives you a bit of time so thinking actually this couldn't have worked out any better for him yeah and i like the contrast because at the start of the book both characters, Karen and Navison, are described as incredibly attractive characters. Karen was got, had a modeling career. She's still incredibly beautiful, but she's broken. Um, she's not whole. At the end of the book, she becomes whole she, within herself. She still has her beauty, but then Navison is different. Uh, at the end, he's he's broken apart. He's not a whole person, but he finally can be a whole person. And I agree. The ending was it couldn't have been better very purposely constructed. Yeah. And also I think part of the horror of it is that it may not have worked out that way. It wouldn't have worked out that way for him without Karen. And I didn't see her as, as the hero of the book until she became the hero of the book, which I think accidental heroes are very much where heroes tend to be. 
Uh, and so all of those things, it's all incredibly intentional. It's all very carefully presented. I don't think it's haphazard. And again, going back to the concept of gimmicky, it just, just isn't, it just isn't gimmicky. Mm. It's, it's, it's a very original, what would you call it? Um, construction of complex literary devices. Yeah. I want to make one final point of why I think it's a love story before moving on to my next question. And it's actually a, um, a mission that you found in the text. So the reason why I think this is a love story is because I've been watching a lot of Korean drama and in Korean drama, their love, and I thought about why it takes so long to develop and it even takes um, lifetimes, generations um, for love to happen in Korean drama. And I came to the conclusion that love in Korea or Asia even means patience. Love is patience. I will wait. I will be there. Whereas love in the Western sense is sacrifice, I think. In the end, this is a love story because Karen is willing to sacrifice everything to go see Will Napson. And I came, I thought about this on the ride home from you because we were talking about the Puritans and how in the end the bad guy has to die. Um, but then in the end, you know, the whole point of Christianity is about love and it's about sacrifice of, so, you know, Jesus to admit you of all your sins, etc. This is why I think this is an incredibly deep love story, especially now uh, West, Western sphere. That's a, that's a very sophisticated reading. I couldn't possibly disagree with any of that. Um, my only thought is that it, it remains, if you think about it, right? So, so you said, um, the, the context within which you're arriving at this conclusion is around, uh, Korean, uh, dramas and, and such, and also a discussion we had. So, so I would say that for you, it's a love story and for many other people. Um, but it's a love story with a horror aspect. I don't think it is. I, but I don't think it's a horror story with a love aspect. I guess what I'm trying to say is I think house of leaves shifts to be whatever you're going to find in it at the time. Mm -hmm. I could certainly see a love story in it, but for me, it was very much a horror story and even a horror story that in many senses, well, you know, had a happy ending. Um, it, it allowed you to think that it might not have had a happy ending, that it was just almost there, but for the grace of Karen go I, you know, if she hadn't been up to the task, she didn't seem like she'd be up to the task, but it, but it was believable when it happened. It was, um, masterfully done, but I, but I, I read it as a horror story, I think, but I could imagine that if I read it again in a month, I might read it as a love story. But I think, I guess all I'm disputing is, I think this book is open to multiple mm. uh, primary readings. And I think its structure has a lot to do with that. It's an enormous achievement. Like any, anyone who yeah. uh, criticizes it almost inevitably tries to deconstruct its authenticity, you know, like it's a gimmick. It's just trying to be clever, which is a, you know, an interesting concept in the first place because a book can't really try to do anything. Um, it requires the reader to make some of the effort. I think readers who, who feel that a book is trying to be clever might feel that they are not clever enough. And I think this is where you run into trouble. I, I've noticed that some of the very critical reviews said the book made me feel dumb. And I certainly don't think that was the intention of the book. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think we, we see ourselves in it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a multiple level reading book and it's a shame that people feel dumb. I mean, I mean, the footnotes are fake. It's not, it's never meant to have been read in the academic sense, but moving on. So on page 320, Zapano mm. appears to have written a typo. What is that typo, Gareth? Oh, let Do me read that out. Let me grab my big copy here yes it's a very big book it is a big book it's a mighty book regrettably tom fails to stop at a sip a few hours later he has finished off the whole fifth as well as half a bottle of wine he might have spent all night drinking had exhaustion not caught up with me 
This was one of several times during the book where I went, hey, what now? Have we just hit a typo? What's going on there? And, you know, I don't know what's going on there. Um, but I found my reading immediately disturbed. Um, mm. This is a book that wants to do that over and over again. Yeah. And um, it's a great omission. I mean, because at certain times throughout the book, Truant will point out typos or he even makes addition to Sopano's work. Uh, at one stage, he said, yes, I changed that. Uh, oh, um, you didn't notice, did you? So is it an addition? Is it a typo? Or is Zampano uh, just tired And when he was constructing Tom's story? Uh, yeah. He couldn't get through the night with Tom, so that's why Tom didn't drink through the night. It, it suggests the possibility. Yeah. And the other thing, and this might be a bit of a conspiracy theory for the book, um, is it possible that Sopano was actually a member of the Navitson family? And it didn't, it never occurred to me. So everyone gets out of the tunnel, except for Holloway, because we assume he dies. But, you know, Tom disappears. Is there a potential that Sopano is actually Tom? It seems unlikely to me. Um, okay. I think, for starters, Tom has wrecked hands. You would think that would have been a description included of um, Zampano okay. when, when, because um, Johnny Truant, you know, had, had an acquaintance with him. I have one more quote for you. Mm -hmm. um, this desire, this is from page 119, this desire for exteriority is no doubt further amplified by the utter blankness found within. Nothing there provides a reason to linger in part because not one object, let alone fixture or other manner of finish work has ever been discovered there. Back in 1771, Sir Joshua Reynolds, in his Discourses on Art, argued against the importance of the particular, calling into question, for example, minute attention to the discriminations of drapery. The clothing is neither woolen, nor linen, nor silk, satin, or velvet. It is drapery. It is nothing more." End quote. Such global appraisal seems perfectly suited for Navidon's house, which despite its corridors and rooms of various sizes, is nothing more than corridors and rooms, even if sometimes, as John Updike once observed in the course of translating the labyrinth, quote, the gallery seems straight but curve furtively, end quote. So that to me, you know, you could use that description to interrogate House of Leaves as a, as a book. Um, it's, it's very much involved with the particulars. It constantly draws your attention to the particulars. Um, this is not a book as drapery. This, this is a book where, you know, you're, you're encouraged constantly to think about the fact that you're reading it. And if you think about it, all the characters in this book after the Navidsons themselves are readers and their life is, is tremendously disturbed by the act of reading House of Leaves. And I suppose my question to you, Shannon, as we near the end of this review is, you know, I've noticed you're in this new room. It has an unpainted partition wall. Who knows what's behind it? It does appear to have crept up on you. Do you feel uh, entirely safe in your current surroundings? Has the House of Leaves tended to follow you around in your day-to-day -day life? Very good question. <laughs> um, yes. And I'm going, and that leads me to my star rating for this book. To me, a book has succeeded in what I wanted to do, which is change me and make me think. I came up with the why I thought it was a love story uh, yesterday is because I'm still thinking about way after finishing my reading of it, which was a couple of weeks ago now. I first said to you that this was an unstarable book because, you know, it's a horror book, it's a love story, but in the end, it's neither of those things. So how do you rate something that's so uncomparable? Um, I can't put it on a tier system with anything else that I've read. So I was only left with its ability to rate it as has it shifted my perspective has it changed me and so it would be a five star for that reason 
And before you go on to your other, your um, rating, I just wanted to read something out as well. And this would probably be for the writers of our um, readers and writers of our podcast. So this is a side note, an interesting side note on Daniel Lipsky. So we say this is his debut novel, but he actually wrote his first book at the age of 10. And it was nearly a 400 pages about a boy who grows up to become a cocaine addict in New York City and ends up in prison. So his parents found it disturbing. He later showed it to a high school teacher who rejected it as being dirty because of his use of four-letter words. Because of these and similar experiences, Daniel Lucy became reluctant to show his work to anyone else. Now, for aspiring writers, you know, this is an amazing book. It's just been given a five-star review from me, which is hard to get. And um, I just want to say, keep producing your works because it is going to become something and it's probably going to become something as good as Daniel Lewski's. Well, I, I would say that's definitely something to swing for. Mm. I, you know, when I, when I started the book, uh, I had a beautiful dark brown beard and now I have these white streaks and that was just the horror of reading it. it, it <laughs> uh, yeah. And no, I don't go back through our previous podcasts and find the lie in that. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I'd give it five stars as well. And I, I think the reason, I think for starters, it's beautiful. Um, it's, it's construction, it's complexity, the ease with which you can throw off parts of it and still enjoy the whole. Um, I, I think it's a, yeah, I would say it's a masterpiece. I think it's taken together a lot of very difficult forms, tied them together into a bizarre lunatic house of leaves. And I think it's, it's marvelous. I really enjoyed it. I think people should, mm. um, absolutely at least give a few pages a try and, and just be easy on yourself. Like wandering into a house like this is not, not a straightforward thing. If it unsettles you, if you find it difficult to read, if, if you find yourself, you know, bored or unsettled or have a sudden feelings of self-loathing, just allow those to settle because we all have those things when we enter the house of leaves, I think. So yeah, I loved it. Absolutely five stars. Yeah, I loved it too. Mm. What a lot of pressure for the next book, right? The pressure is on us to pick an excellent next book for review. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've thrown a few titles around and I picked House of Leaves. So what did you end up deciding? Well, I've given this a lot of thought and it really boiled down to two. Mariana Enrique's uh, Things We've Lost in the Fire. Um, however, that's another quote-unquote horror novel. They, they both fall into the same genre and Goodreads categorization. So I feel like that one might want to wait a little bit. So I thought we should go for something profoundly different. And I think Margaret Atwood's Murder in the Dark would be the way okay. I would suggest we go for the next one. I'm quite excited by that. And I think there's quite a lot in that that we can look at from the point of view of creative writing and uh, writing exercises and such. So I think that'll be a good way to head us towards the end of the year. Well, that's a fantastic idea. Um, did you want to give a spill on Margaret Atwood before we call it a day? No, I think I think Margaret Atwood, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I, I don't know what I would say about the woman. She's very impressive. So I think we'll leave that mm. for next time. I'm going to put together a little bit of a monument for her because, you know, I can't, I can't half-ass this, this particular thing. Um, but I am very excited about it. Murder in the Dark is an incredible book. Uh, and, I'm, yeah. and it's a very short book. So if you're following along at home, uh, we have taken pity on you. Uh, expect this book to be about a tenth the size of the last one, but yeah. but equally wonderful. Yeah, well, um, today was so much fun. I really enjoyed reviewing House of Leaves. I enjoyed reading it so much. And to our audience, if you uh, want to share your feelings and reviews on House of Leaves, please contact us at pleasureofthetext.com. Leave us a message. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So go over there, join the Facebook page. And we're also putting our tendrils out to other social medias. So hopefully we'll see you guys over there as well. And did you have any last things to say before we head off for a beautiful weekend, Gareth? Um, no, enjoy your beautiful weekend, but make sure you've got a book with you just in case the weather turns sour. 
Yeah. <laughs> Wherever you may be in the world, always carry a book with you. Exactly. Always have one near, near to hand. It's quite important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we will see you next time at the pleasure of the tech. Looking forward to it. Bye, everyone. Bye.